Hey guys, how you doing? Welcome to Wisdom and Torah. Hey man, right now we are doing a very important meeting with my friend Joe Halevi. How you doing, Joel? Are you there, Joel? Joel, yep. Joel, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, man. All right. So, okay. So, as some of you know, Joel and I were friends for a long time. And we've been talking about, as some of you know. Oh, wait a minute. I'm listening to myself twice. So, my question is this, my friend. Do you observe Hanukkah and why? Talk to me. Um, wow. Went straight to that one, huh? Yeah, well, uh, we have to you... we have to go right to the point, man. <laughs> point of controversies, you know how it is. You had to do that to me. Um, yeah. do I observe Hanukkah? The answer is yes. Why? Because I'm a Jew who lives amongst other Jews and we have customs and a culture. Okay, so, okay, let's talk about that then. So, based on what you have studied all your years, and I know you're very educated. No, no, the correct term is educated. Exactly, 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 exactly. Uh, my question to you is this. What is the meaning of Hanukkah? Is it the way that today modern secular Jews observe, or is it more related to the temple? I know what you're going to answer, but I just want to know from somebody who lives currently, where you live, north of where? I just live outside of Haifa these days. Perfect. I live in the, I live in the valley near Haifa. I actually live in a very traditional place. So there's a healthy mixture of people here from different walks of life. So you do get exposed to pretty much most point of views that exist from people who are more religious to people who yeah. are secular. Uh, funny thing is the town I live in has more synagogues per capita than most towns in Israel and overall. So, it has gone. So, uh, you, so you know. you're surrounded by... Different types of ideas, different types, but they all observe Hanukkah, right? Yeah, I mean, you you go around and you basically have your local Chabad people who do a, a public lighting for everyone, for those who don't light at home. But it, it is a thing. I mean, first of all, it is a thing nationally as, a, as, as Israelis. Um, it's also something that connects all Jews um, to to one culture the issue is is how do you interpret this culture so for example when you go to a to an orthodox jew and you ask him what is hanukkah that's you know ask the talmudic question my hanukkah they'll tell you the story that the maccabees went into the temple and they found they purified the temple and they found a jar of oil and they lit it, and it was it, it was enough oil for eight days. And then after eight days, they had new oil because the oil has to had to be pure because if it's not pure, you can't use uh, an unpure oil. And therefore, they established a festival to um, observe Hanukkah, and they make a big fuss about lighting candles and the menorah the and, and the oil. oil and the oil and so on. So allow me real you quick, go, you, go, you go to the other end of it, you ask seculars, and it'll be more about the Maccabees wipe the floor with the Hellenists. Now, you ask people like me, and you say, what is the point of Hanukkah? The answer is the temple. Because what I do is, I, as a trade historian, 
I go into the sources, the actual sources, not the very late Talmudic understanding right. of such material, and actually dive into the into the the books themselves describe these things, and you realize it's all about the temple. It has nothing to do with oil. The oil story is a fable. Um, the lighting of the candles seems to be some practice that developed in the Second Temple era. Josephus doesn't even mention lighting candles. He just said it's called the Festival of Urim. So we don't even know if that means that they actually lit lights. Yeah. Um, but if you call it Urim, presumably there was some okay, kind so, of light going on. So let, but other than that, I mean, that's really what it really was about. So let me read from... Second Maccabees, Second Maccabees chapter 10, because you went to where I wanted to go to. I'm glad that you actually had, you got it right there. I, I have, I have uh, Daniel Schwartz version, which was translated directly from the Greek into Hebrew. Um, the book originally was written in Hebrew. So what they did with versions like this is they tried to uh, create something that, be, that would read like a, a Second Temple do, uh, document. Show me, so, show me the book real quick. Show me the book real quick. So this is second Maccabees. The first Maccabees apparently ran out. I was too tardy in buying first Maccabees. So I only uh -huh. bought second Maccabees, the only one I was yeah. able to buy. Cool. Um, they give you a beautiful cover. Dust cover yes. With, uh, beautiful. You can see the Greek version. And Daniel Schwartz is a well-known researcher from, uh, from Hebrew U. And a uh, very intelligent man, apparently. Well, so, so having, having these sources really helps a lot. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's very different when you read these things uh, in Hebrew than you read them in, say, English. Now, it would be amazing to read these in Greek, right. but the Greek actually is a translation of an older version that didn't survive. Uh, now, we also have the difference between 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees. I think someone put it the best was, uh, I can't remember their name right now, but they said that 1st Maccabees is concerned with the, with the, the family, the Hasmonean family. Second mm -hmm. Maccabees is more in, more concerned with the Jews and Judaism. Right, gotcha. So um, it's a really interesting thing to read. And when I when I actually took um, I I've taken courses in this era in in this period and also taught classes at, a, at the Oranim, well involved in teaching those classes. And it's very interesting to see how each source kind of deals with the question differently. Um, but they both tell sim very similar stories. You know, it's you know how the stories change throughout time. That's true. So let me read from Second uh, Second Maccabees chapter ten in my version, and then uh, you can make any corrections. But you, you're, it's true. It's all about the Beit Hamikdash, the temple. Okay. So, and then I think when I read from one through verse eight, we're going to see something really interesting. And then I need you to expound on that because uh, the Bible. I mean, the the the, te the text says. That is a national holiday. Many people confuse the Hagim versus this particular observant, which is not a feast. Um, it's actually a special national holiday. Let me read it. So it says, yeah, it's, it's basically like Independence Day. Exactly. And it, so, and it was, but it was framed in a very specific way, which we'll get into. Yes. Uh, by the way, you looked at the, uh, the uh, prophecy of Haggai, right? Of course I did. I mean, the Haggai, the, 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 the it's building. Not, it's not just Haggai. I was looking at Haggai. I was looking at the book of Ezra. I wrote a whole paper about the dedication of the temple to King, of King Solomon. Yeah, this but it's much but, more complicated but, than. But than Haggai, the same. but Haggai is really cool because the prophecy of Haggai in the second chapter, they start building the foundations of the temple building on the 24th of the month of Tishlev. It's kind of exactly. cool. And it's, it's, none, of, none of this, none of this is random. There, there, I know. There, 
the it's kind of funny because the conference I was at today uh-huh. was actually dealing with the fact that things were done and things were written deliberately to reflect on other things from other places. So we, I was in a conference today. We have an annual conference every Hanukkah at the Haifa University. And today, this time they were talking about the intertextual uh, commentary. Okay. And how different texts from the Tanakh itself, from Second Temple literature, um, comment about things within themselves and before them, and, and you kind of get this idea that things are designed to tell the story in a very, very specific way to make sure that you stay on top of a, of a specific principle. So having Chagai's um, um, foundation put down the 24th of Kislev and then having the, um, the, the Hanukkah being done, because it says here, it presumably the presumed idea is that on the 25th, that's literally when they conquered Jerusalem. But you can actually argue that it wasn't that. What they did is that they conquered before and waited and prepared things until they reached a specific date. I agree with mimic, that. Mimic previous things. I would agree with that. It will take it. It will take a few days to like clean it up a little bit more and then sanctify the altar. And I think that's important for people because I, I noticed that Joel that in the Bible there all there's so many things connected with each other that many people overlook by not understanding the history. It's kind of cool. So let me read the first eight verses and then we expand on those. And then we ask you the question, did Yeshua observe Hanukkah? Okay. It says, now Maccabee, the Maccabees and his followers, uh, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city. They tore down the altars that have been built in the public square for the, uh, by the foreigners and also destroyed the sacred precincts. They purified the sanctuary and made another altar of sacrifice. That's not going to take a day to do. It's going to be a few days before they do that. It says, then striking fire out of flint, they offered off, uh, korbanots, sacrifices, after a lapse of two years, and they offered incense and lighted canned, uh, lamps and set out the bread of presence. When they had done this, they fell prostrated and implored the Lord they may be never again fall into such misfortunes. But that if they should ever sin, they may be disciplined by him with forbearance and not handed over to blasphemous and barbarous nations. It happened on the same day in which the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners. The purification of the sanctuary took place. That is, on the 25th day of the same month, which was Kislev, Kislev. They celebrated it for eight days. It actually tells you why they did it in the manner that they celebrated with joy. It says they celebrated for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the festival of Booth, remembering how not long before the festival of Booth of Tabernacles, they have not been they have been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals, therefore carrying ivy, uh, the whole ritual. Verse 8. It says, they decreed by public edict, ratified by vote, that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. That's why Jewish people do it. It's actually a national holiday. Uh, I can't hear you. My was completely gone bro was it was it your end or my end i think it's my end it's my end 
But um, what I, what was I saying? What did, what did I left off? Did you did you hear my reading? I I lost you after around verse uh, five or six. So when you read verse eight, it talks about that it was a holiday. It was it made a national holiday in verse eight. Okay. Well, more than that, it says him kavu betzav meshutaf uvachlata lechol am hayehudim lahagogat ayim meleshana b'shana. It was a, it was a national decision. This is not. The way it's described here is the Hasmoneans were not enforcing this on everyone in, in, the, in the principle of you know, celebrate us as the Hasmonean group. The, 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 the whole premise of it was that they were supposed to do this as together. This was a, this was a joint decision to do this as an entire group. Now, it, it, it's not clear to me if this included all Jews around the world, or are we talking only Jews who live in, live in the land of Israel at the time? Because um, if I'm not mistaken, there's some version later on, I think, that says that they sent a letter to the, uh, to the Jews of Egypt and, and asked them to join with in this celebration as well. And uh, Jews of Egypt is a, is a really interesting thing. I mean, the Jews of Alexandria, were, were a little different, and there were Jews of Elephant yeah. Dean, which was kind of different as well. Uh, but if I remember correctly, later on, there's like this description where it says that they sent them a letter saying, please yeah. uh, join us in this. And it seems to be that the, the practice itself spread very quickly within um, within within Jewish communities. Do you think, though, do you think that once has been decreed by the body, a judicial body, and the people that then it carries that kind of weight so that we can be all together in unity. Yeah, I, I would argue that this was something I think a lot of people accepted. I mean, the, the Sadducees wouldn't have a reason to reject this. The Pharisees wouldn't have a reason to reject this. Right. The only group I would say that maybe rejected this were the Essenes. Um, they rejected the, everybody anyway. Yeah, but the, the Essenes were also specifically... Um, where, well, the Pharisees later on as well, but it seems to be that the scenes may have had a reason to keep away from Hanukkah because of the defilement in their world, in their worldview, right. the temple was defiled yeah, and yeah. there was nothing, the, the priesthood was the incorrect priesthood and so on. So it, for it, them, disconnecting from Hanukkah would make sense. But It, it would be more like politics. It would be more like politics for them. Exactly. It would be more political than anything else. Yeah. But when we think about this statement here, that they decided with an agreed upon... Uh, decree that they would do this together. Um, it seems to be that this was be, would be something that at least everyone within the jurisdiction of what the Hasmoneans controlled, everyone would accept this. Got so it. Okay. This, this is this is this is this is has nothing to do with Sanhedrin or anything. This was the Hasmoneans, the elders of the people, and the entire people said we're going to accept this as as a group. My my, my is, issue, my main issue today. Let's talk about. As you know, people, well, they call themselves Messianic Hebrew roots, whatever. They, they're, to be honest with you, this is my feeling, okay? I'm not saying it's true in every case, because 90% of many people who follow Torah really don't focus on the temple, and you know that. You, that's, that's a big problem, because if we, if anything that's connected, connected with the temple, um, then it is, this is directly linked with the temple. Sadly, because of the custom and the cultures and and uh, and the legend, as you, as you well said about the oil, it has taken a lot of true meaning out of the day. And but when you go back to the first century writings, the book of John, chapter ten, verse twenty-two, I want to focus a little bit on that. 
because we know now that Israel always kept it as a remembrance of the dedication of the temple, seven days. We know dedication of the temple, the altar. Um, they celebrated with the rejoicing of Sukkot because they couldn't remember, they couldn't celebrate Sukkot. We know that. The, the, the text is clear on that. Mm -hmm. It says, at the time of the festival of dedication, Hanukkah, which means dedication. Actually, the, <laughs> Psalms 30 is a dedication psalm. It says, mm -hmm. took place in Jerusalem. In the, it was winter, and Yeshua was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. By the way, he was not inside the temple proper. He was in the oldest, in the oldest area, which is, I know, it's actually the east, the eastern wall, which is the oldest uh, wall that still, that was built by Solomon at that time. And it says, so the Jews gather around him and said, how long would you keep us in suspense? Are you the Messiah? So we're not going to go into the rest of the conversation. But people, people say, well, he was in the temple, so he wasn't really keeping Hanukkah. And again, how ridiculous do you think that statement is? To me, it makes no sense. Any observant Jew in the first century would have, who loved God and his temple would have recognized that that day is a commemoration of God's holiness in his temple. I would say more than that, because Hanukkah would be something that would slightly be in the face of the Romans. You have to remember, for example, that when Balkochva did his rebellion, he imitated Hasmonean coins, and some of his coins were imprinted directly on Roman coins. So you can actually look at some of the coins, and you can see underneath the temple, you can kind of see a face of a Roman emperor or something. Yeah. And the whole idea of Hanukkah for people living at this point in time would have been not only the historical events, which would, be, would have been important, but also the current events. And yeah. current events are always interpreted through, um, you know, biblical literature or trying to find some kind of like an echo of it in the past. But this was actually quite recent for them. So um, it would be would make a lot of sense that for Jews living during this era, Hanukkah would have been the anti-Roman festival as well. You know, that's that, that, I never really thought about that. What you just said in regards to like an affront to the Romans, because it was a show of strength against oppression and the and the foreigners. That's kind of cool. So Yeshua was really making not only commemorating the dedication of the temple and the holiness of the temple, but also like an affront because he's saying, are you the Messiah? Remember, that is a, a, a struggle of power between Caesar as being their anointed one versus what the Jews were looking for, their anointed one to come and redeem them from the power of oppression of the Roman Empire. So that's kind of political, actually, in, in nature. Well, Hanukkah overall is completely political. That, that's the whole idea behind it. It's not perceived necessarily only as the day of dedication of the temple it is also perceived as a political statement we need to understand that your freedom by this point in time within the cultures of the area your religious freedom had to do with your nationality if Correct. we say for example in the bronze or iron age eras that your religion and your state went hand in hand it was political as well, especially if you start dealing with people like the like the Assyrians that made a point about their Lord Ashul conquering these different places. And then basically Isaiah turning around and saying, the Lord um, yud he, he It's kind of interesting. I actually, looked up, I looked this up, and what was very interesting about it was that, yeah. the, that Isaiah is the one we see the most usage of the word Adonai and then yud to indicate the... The, the political stance here or the religious stance, but that's all framed for us within a religious scope. But when we move 
forward, we get a much more secular understanding of things that may have actually existed in the first temple era as well. But the the idea of Hanukkah, even though we connect it to the temple, and it's it's kind of like a rededication, it's supposed to resemble Sukkot, which also connects the temple, the second temple, to to what King Solomon did, because when you unwind some parts of First Kings chapter eight, you kind of have to ask yourself the question: Did Solomon dedicate it during Sukkot or at another period next to Sukkot? And in the research I did on this, and I'm not the first one to say this, it seems to be that an editor may have actually intervened in the text there and didn't want it wanted to separate Sukkot from the dedication. But regardless of that, what you get here is, yes, it's about the temple. Yes, it's about, you know, rededicating the temple. But the temple symbolizes from this point onwards the political status of Jerusalem, the political status of the people who live in Jerusalem. Now, we have politics throughout the centuries and overall, I mean, but what we get here is the establishment of a new regime, a, a kind of kingdom. This becomes even more political than any, any previous stage. Now, the temple right. has always been political because when we, talk about, um, when we talk about Solomon's temple, the whole idea of building a temple in Jerusalem was a political move. It had a point of establishing King Solomon's uh, position as king of Israel in Jerusalem. But when we when we kind of go into this era, it's about not the internal fights of the Israelites, but more about the, well, there was internal fights amongst the Judeans because this, this whole story starts with turning Jerusalem into a, into a polis. Um, but when we when we kind of look at what Hanukkah turns into by, by this stage and then later on, it's more nationality than anything else. Yeah. So it, has, it doesn't really have anything to do with adding to the Torah. It has, uh, you know, we, we, it, the whole thing of saying a blessing over lighting the candles, I can understand the, the argument some Karaites, the Karaites bring up about this, but the, the point is that this is more about nationality. This is more about taking a stand against the, um, the geopolitical reality from the conquest of um, uh, Alexander the Great. The, the changes that happened within this idea that oh yeah we we can we can go keep Shabbat and then in the afternoon go sit in Colosseum and watch right. people being slaughtered I mean that, that's more the Roman era yeah exactly whole, yeah 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 this, this or, go, became, or go to the bath or go to the bathhouses with the Greeks exactly so so Hanukkah became the symbol of we are not that we are we have our own culture we're not accepting this uh, this polytheistic um, Hellenistic uh, ideology, and we're keeping away from this. And it, it really became, I think, throughout the generations, a symbol to the concept of our own identity. So it, it is kind of sometimes weird to me, at least if we can take into our time, it's weird to me that you have people who go celebrate Hanukkah, but then on the other hand, uh, defame Torah or um, attack the state of Israel, attack Jews and so on. And, you know, for example, the whole thing with... No, um, how, how about the ones who they don't want to follow Hanukkah, but they're okay celebrating December 31st as a new year? Um, that as well is... is See, that, that, but that's what, I, well, that's what I'm saying, that there is, a, there is a mixture for lack of understanding of the meaning. Yeshua being in the temple not only is making a political statement, but also he's making a religious statement because you're right. And this is something that in my research, 
on ancient Near Eastern studies, I found really quickly that there was not such a thing as separating uh, state from religion. It was all one. And I think that once we recognize that, then we will be able to understand that your relationship with your God was also the same relationship with your king because they were connected, you know, and there was no difference. Um, I think that would you agree with me, Joel, that the reason why people struggle with some of the observance of this particular holidays, which is a national holiday, we know, is that throughout the last 1700 years, maybe Jewish people in the dispersion, they felt separated from the original geographical location or the purpose of the observancy. And they began to acquire certain customs that look more like the customs of the nations in which now they, the people who want to be loyal to God, they, they kind of struggle with, you know, embracing because they came from Christian, you know, background and Christmas and stuff like the exchanging of gifts for eight days. Um, wow. That's, that's a very, <laughs> there's a lot of things that developed throughout the years. I mean, I think that uh, in the last 1700 years, um, well, that has an impact in the way that is I mean, observed and perceived today. Yeah, I mean, I mean, things continuously change all the time. I mean, when we talk about any practice, any any anything in the world, it gets modernized all the time. Uh -huh. So, for example, when I was growing up, yes, I mean, for for some of us, the idea of having eight days of receiving gifts kind of resembled the whole idea of you know, the, the whole Christmassy thing that you, you, you know, on the eighth day of Christmas and so on, basically from the 25th to the 31st. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that what's happened is not in the last 1700 years, but I would argue that in the last 200 years with the emancipation of Jews and the rise of, um, you know, the reform movement and the rise of, uh, uh, the, the more hu humanitarian type of philosophies in Europe, Jews felt more comfortable kind of migrating towards something that they can merge together with other social groups. Yeah. And you end up with, um, you know, a, Hanuk a Hanukkah next to a Christmas tree. Right. Um, and it, 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 is, it is kind of... The, it is very, very strange, some of the stuff that's developed. I mean, to the point where there was these jokes about a, a, a Hanukkah bush. And if you remember... Oh, I, dude, I've seen that. It's crazy. You know, I, this is the thing that gets me. And you know, Joel, this is, this is the one thing that I struggle with. Uh, because not separating the whole and the profane, but trying to find the balance of observe, trying to go to the root of the meaning of the day. Because, you know, now through the need of Jewish people to f uh, look for acceptance in the dispersion, it has led many, like you said, the conservative and the reform movement, it has led them to, in a way, compromise the true, the true values and the true meaning of this day to look more like the nation. And I think long term that has caused a lot of people that are now coming in into Torah who want to please God to not understand the original meaning and they go after the fables or they go after the, the mixing of the yeah. local cultures into what it truly, what it really was. I, I think Hanukkah really does symbolize the principle of identity. 
more than more than any celebration point. within the Jewish calendar. Yeah. And, and so there's a certain irony in the fact that this this is also turned into the the Jewish Christmas uh, per se. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it really was a symbol that would represent um, for the people who lived at the time. You know, the, the problem the problem is as follows. The identity question has been probably on the minds of Torah keepers throughout the centuries for the last several thousand years. And even more so now, think, people coming in new. Yeah, and I think that when we, we kind of look at the, the things that Jews or Torah, let's just say Israelites in overall went through yeah. in each period, the response was different. And... When we look, for example, at the destruction, the, the, the changes that happened within the identity of the tribes themselves moving from tribes to a kingdom, I mean, the response was absolute shock. Yeah, and, it was. It was, exactly, it yeah. was. People and have I, no example, idea, man. They have no idea. I, what I, actually, I actually do have an idea because currently I'm, I'm teaching the book of Judges and we're discussing this problem because Judges continuously uh, yeah. brings up this, this statement there's no king in Israel. Each man does it, which is right in his own eyes. More or less and like then, today within the Hebrew Roots movement, right? It's very similar. I, I was I was actually specifically asked that this past <laughs> Sunday when I was teaching, because uh, there was some there was there was someone there from the Hebrew Roots movement, and he wanted to, to kind of see what I think about this. Uh, but you know, so we move from that, and then. Um, so for the Judeans, it's the House of David and the Temple in Jerusalem. Yeah. For the North, it's well, we don't really get a good observation what the North believed in because it's most of the Tanakh is written from the well, those sections of the Tanakh are written mostly from the perspective of Judeans. Mm -hmm. Then um, you know the temples, uh, the North is destroyed. So Isaiah stands up and says, "You see, we were right, you were wrong." Okay. Yeah. Then Jerusalem is destroyed. And two groups are created. You have Jews living in diaspora in Babylon saying, you know, we're the better ones. We have King, we have the King Konyahu and we have uh, Oyechenia. And, you know, and even Jeremiah calls them the good figs, while the ones in Judea are the bad figs. And, and King Zedekiah is, is whisked away uh, and tormented and blinded and so on. And then what you're left with is this broken up, scattered bruised group of people suffering from post-traumatic post stress. That's, I usually call the Second Temple the post-traumatic stress era of Judaism or the Jewish people. Yeah, man, that's and and when, they, when they come back here, they're, they're fighting with one another over pretty much everything. How to interpret the Torah. Oh, you're, we're the holy seed. We're the non-holy seeds. We're from the north. You're from the south. You have to, you have to oath loyalty to Jerusalem. No, we don't. We erect a temple, someone erects a temple, Mount Grizim, but there's still actually most of them Judeans, as Josephus describes you know, it. And then, and then you get this thing, because the Persians were good. The Persians were actually very nice to everyone. The Persians were, were, were very liberal towards everyone. And then shows up this, this guy called Alexander the Great, who, whose father usurped the thrones of almost everything in Greece. And, and they show up and they say, okay, we want to mix everything. Right. And the Jews go, wait, 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 what do we mean mix everything? So some people say, great, let's mix everything. Most of the people say, don't, we want to do, don't want to do that. And then after a period of about, let's say, hundred about 170 years of this going on, eventually 
they get fed up. Some, a group of them get fed up because they start seeing Jews mixing everything together. And someone stands up and says, enough is enough. This was, this was a, a massive breaking point. And this was the point when you can actually say that Jewish nationalism actually starts. Hanukkah is actually very important to the concept of our identity and anyone who's a Torah observant identity, because this is the point in time where the Tanakh really becomes, the Bible really becomes the Bible. Uh-huh. You know, Judah the Maccabee, actually, one of his speeches says, as it says in the, 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 oh, the Law of Moses and the yeah. Prophets and, and Psalms. It's interesting, he has Psalms there, but not everything else. But this is the point where they're kind of finalizing their text. They're saying, this is what we're kind of doing. This is who we are. These are our laws, and Hanukkah is pivotal. No matter where you come from, Hanukkah, if you agree with the Hasmoneans, don't agree with the Hasmoneans, whatever, whatever you perceive it as, there was this realization in the, in the communities of Torah keepers, except for the Samaritans, because due to the Maccabee went ahead and destroyed their temple, so they have a, they have a massive grudge against, uh, against Hanukkah. Not, right. Every year this, uh, there's a Samaritan scholar, which I've met before, a very interesting guy. He every year publishes a thousand, thousands of thousands of reasons why Samaritans will not celebrate Hanukkah. And it's again, it's an identity thing. And you know what? He yeah. accents really in a very interesting way. It does go ahead with this idea of we are Jerusalemites. We only served in Jerusalem. This establishes the idea that really no other temple should be accepted. And I was actually discussing today with a friend of mine about this whole thing that there was a t- the Temple Elephantine, there was another temple called the, the Temple of the Land of Chonyo. There may have been other temples that were serving the God of Israel. And I haven't, I'm actually in, in communication with this friend of mine because he just he just finished his PhD. You won't believe it. The guy finished a PhD in one year. That's crazy. Okay? One year. I mean, he told me because he was very methodic about it. So he he finished his PhD in one year. Insane. But um, what was very interesting about the whole thing is that it really is that point where you establish this idea of who we are, Torah followers. Who do we serve? The God of Israel. What is his holy place? Jerusalem. How do we establish ourselves as a a group? We have agreed upon things that we follow together. So wait a minute. That means that that puts Yeshua's going to Jerusalem and being in there in the temple uh, proper. That that was then. That takes a complete different perspective. It's a huge political statement. It's a huge allegiance to Israel's identity as a nation. Jerusalem as the sole purpose of worship. Because then he's making a contrast with the powers between Samaria and uh, Jerusalem. He's also showing to the Romans that he is. He has the allegiance, and the people understood that he was uh, in favor of Israel and the holiness of the town. That was a huge statement being there. It's not just him showing up because I have nothing else better to do today, man. Yeah, I mean, he could have arrived in Jerusalem whenever he wanted. I mean, why, right. why show up specifically at the Feast of Olim? Why is this important for the writer to emphasize this? We have to remember that when exactly. things were written, it wasn't random. People put things in. It doesn't matter if, if you say that this is from the original text or this is an editorial element. It doesn't really matter. What's it's there for a reason. Is the it's fact that it's there for a reason. Right. So... If it's there for a reason, we have to ask ourselves, what's the reason? And it seems to be that there's, a, this is not just a, look, when, when, in, in, for example, in biblical literature, in, in, in Tanakh literature, when you say something like that, what you're actually making is a chronological statement. But, you know, you, 
here specifically, it seems to be that there may actually be a little bit more to this. Okay, right. so for example, if th there's this, for example, when, when you read, um, say, um, the, the, for example, when it says, uh, what is it? I think it's, I think it's, um, I think that's in Second Samuel chapter 11. It says, when the kings return. Now, that's a time reference that is significant because it says that King David did war when every other king would do war. So there's a certain tactician element here about him. Right. It frames King David in a slightly different light. He's not this king that's just sitting in the waiting for God to tell him what to do. He's a king that also acts by himself. And it, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that. But the, the time reference there has may look random, but there's actually a reason for it. It's describing what King David is doing. It gives us some a bit more of an insight to how the book of Samuel is written and so on. So sometimes a time reference can mean absolutely nothing. Sometimes a time reference can mean everything. If we're thinking about all the cases where it describes when Yeshua does something in a specific time, if memory serves, usually when, the, when, there's, a, when there's a specific time reference, it's because something important is supposed to happen right. or it has significance. I think, again, I'm not that versed. Actually, but, but actually, I caught, on, I, caught, I caught on to that, Joel, because, for example, let me give you an example. When he goes to Samaria, um, many people do not understand the dynamics of controversy between the Samaritans and Judeans, right? They don't really By understand that point, the it, was, it was open war. I, exactly. But when you read it and when Yeshua has the parable of the Samaritans, you know, they don't really understand the deep meaning behind that parable. And then when the lepers, one of them is healed, he tells them, hey, I want you to go to Jerusalem and present yourself to the priest as the Torah of Moses says. I mean, that was a huge statement by Yeshua to make to a Samaritans where the Samaritans did not respect the temple or Jerusalem as a seat of authority in worship. So healing can exactly. come to you. See, you have to basically consider that every time Yeshua does something in the New Testament, there's a reason. Right. He's, he's, he's very symbolic. He's very, I don't want to say the word theatrical, but let's say theatrical. There's a point to every single action that's done because the understanding is that there's a mission. There's a point for his presence here. There's a point to everything that he does. And this is why, for example, specific, there are specific churches, especially in the Orthodox, the Orthodox churches, want to imitate the life of Yeshua. If the Catholics, for example, focus on the death and resurrection, the Orthodox churches try to imitate the life of Yeshua. This is why they grow long hair and yeah. beards and dress in a certain way and so on. And I remember listening to a, to a monk from the Greek Orthodox Church, and he said, um, you know, the reason we do this is because we want to look like we want to look like Yeshua. Identity, so, identity, identity. Identity. Exactly. There's an identity element here. So when Yeshua, I would argue that when Yeshua goes into the temple at, at the time of the Feast of Urim, even though he's probably going to argue with people there and so on, there are two things that can be said here. The first one is, well, you know, Hanukkah is a time to go to the temple because Hanukkah is about the temple. Right. They haven't forgotten that element yet. Right. Okay. Right. Josephus, who lived after Yeshua, still remembers what's the point of Hanukkah. It's the Talmud, it's the rabbinic literature that starts covering up the, the origins because they wanted, the, first of all, they had an issue with the Hasmoneans. 
Maybe. I mean, there is an argument that, that, they, that the rabbis had the Hasmoneans or not. Shirakovel versus other researchers and so on. Well, I can see why um, there was a huge mess within the Hasmonean family that caused a lot of problems later on with the Romans. So I can see well, why we, the hesitation, too. Forget about that. You have to read Pesher Nachum and I, Pesher I, right? they, they, they executed yeah. Pharisees left, right, and center. That's crazy, yeah. and his two sons, which but, they think but was Joel, Alexander Yanels. But, but, but you got to remember. Let me, finish this. let me just finish this. So that's one thing, and then there, there is a point of basically saying this is a, a not just a national feast and, and being together as a group, but also there's a point of saying, you know, I am here as the potential Messiah, or as the Messiah, depends how you look at it, and, and I'm telling you, this is the, there's a reason I'm here to, to kind of argue with you. Right, right, right. But, you know, it's like, okay, so when we read the prophets, we read them in isolation. We never compare the history surrounding the prophets. Like, for example, we were talking about the book of Haggai, the prophet Haggai, in which he's talking about a prophecy 130 years before it occurs in the time of the Maccabees. That's amazing that the prophecy of the reconstruction of the foundations of the temple building happened on the 24th of Hislev, and then the dedication of the altar happened a whole bunch of years after. Um, so even like we were saying earlier, a lot of the events that we see, they're not by random. And I wish, I would not wish, but I would love for the people in the kingdom to recognize the message behind these things instead of arguing about why we do these things. There's a reason why we study the temple. The first time I ever met you, people don't know the story, but if you never heard it, yeah, Joel was working in a little shop in Jerusalem, the old city, um, inside the city on the third temple model. When I saw it, I was just blown away by it. And for almost every time, all the days that I was in Jerusalem, I was bugging this guy all day long, asking him questions, sitting there, literally sitting on a stool the whole time. There's a little bitty one. I sat there the first five, six days. And I remember talking to him about it. And I was blown away by the understanding of the temple. And that's when the everything stems from the temple. And you understand really the consequences of what happened when the when, when, when Israel began to mix the holy and the profane, that they adopted all the Greek customs, and then they lost their identity. And then these faithful Kohenim, very few Kohen at that time, you know, that really said, no, no, wait a minute. Our identity is a covenant, is the God of Israel. We do not compromise. And they stood for that. That's the message that has to be cherished. And sadly, right now we're looking at the, uh, the can the candle I'm sorry the oil lamp stuff and we forget the essence of brave men who were willing to stand for the character of God and for the covenant of God so identity is a huge thing here actually you made that point I never really considered but it's true it's all really about identity I, I think I think a lot of laws in the Torah about identity I mean I I'm going to do some shameless plugging here but for example I was working on a book together with uh Dr. Yitzhak Feder, which wrote Great the book writer, about me. man. I yeah. read some of his books. I, by the way, I, I spoke with him today because we're, we're, we're supposed to continue Did? working together. Man. Uh, he was at the conference as well. But the I want to take a picture with him together and say, you know, hey, Rico, look at who I'm in. Wait, wait, for the audience who don't know, for the audience who don't know, Dr. Feder, he wrote probably the best book uh, somewhere around here about the Hittite uh, Korbanot, you know. And I, I just read an article that he just uh, that I just got on this um, uh, academia. Man, is incredible. So you're blessed to have the opportunity to study with him. So 
sorry, someone's knocking at the door. Um, so distracting me. So you said, you said, what did you see in academia? No, that there, there was an article that he put out in academia. And I don't know how old the article is, but it just came around my newsfeed. I read it. It was amazing. It's all about, you know, the purity and, and all that stuff. And, you know, uh, people don't realize, Joel, the immense work that took place, not only taking back the city, taking the temple, but then the process of purification. If only they yeah. would really look into the purification process. So I, I wanted to do shameless plugging here. So he just published another book. Uh -huh, which, which one? I helped with, by the way. Okay. Um, so my name appears. He said to me today, I gave you a shout out in the book. And I'm like, you did? Appreciate that. Yeah. You're famous, so, man. Nah, nah. So, <laughs> look, you know, it's, it's, it's always cool to be involved in these types of things. What's the of name things. of the book? What's the name of the book? Oh, I, I keep on forgetting. I have the name somewhere. I keep on forgetting. It, 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 just, it just came out. Is it um, only in, English, uh, in Hebrew right now? No, no. It's actually a book in English. He, he, he mostly writes in English. I mean, he writes in Hebrew. Okay. But he he a lot of it's written in English. Awesome, man. Um, it's it's gonna take me a moment to find, but I I do want to plug this one in because purity and impurity, or tumavit and taran tumah, are are very fundamental principles within the, the 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 identity of Israelites as well. So when they say the whole idea of we we cleanse the temple and so on, that's that's very 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 important because it it really um it really brings forward the us versus them so it's called purity and pollution in the hebrew bible that's what i read Embodied experience to moral uh, metaphor and um i read an article book. based on that yes so i i have the entire book on my computer that i read through um you know months ago that's cool <laughs> because because I was helping with some of the editing and the, the bibliography and so on, and that's a, also a very very important thing. And I mean, I mean, the whole idea it says here, as it describes it, it says here that they cleansed the temple, they cleansed the city, you know, they destroyed the bamot, the high places, and the whole the the sanctified. Yeah, the the, the well, it doesn't say altar, it says bamot. Bamot. What I think what altars are high places. Yeah, the the high places and also these sanctified areas and so on there's there's a point here that we have the purity of the of jerusalem and the purity of the temple from the sense of removing foreign gods and foreign practices but also physically cleansing the temple physically right. removing things which would make it unclean so they it reaches the point where they have to re, they have to re deconstruct the temple and build a new one sorry deconstruct the altar and build a new one and so on and so this is also an era where the idea of purity really blows up, mm -hmm. really, really explodes within uh, Judean culture right. to a point where by the Roman era, we get these, these poles to the people cleanse themselves in. We have the Essenes that probably went into poles to cleanse themselves. And it also part of the identity, the idea oh. of keeping away from marrying, intermarrying and so on that, by the way, it doesn't seem to be an issue in the first temple era, at least, you know, when we read the stories for what they are, it doesn't seem that there's a problem to marry someone who's not a Judean or not an Israelite. This becomes more of an issue later on, right? And it becomes emphasized in the holy seed principles of Islam and Yeah. So that, that's a whole discussion by itself. Yeah, that's another yeah, that's another conversation. But um, so in Ezekiel chapter forty-four, verse twenty-three and twenty-four gives a basically a mandate to the sons of Sadok, right? Well, As we know, they. Let me, they, the Bible, let, me let me get my copy of the Bible. 
Yeah, as we know, as we know, I have them strategically positioned in different places in the house when they need one. As the, as we as we already know, the the the, the ones who fought against the Greeks or uh, the Greek oppression were the Kohenim. We know that. So it says. Yeah, but they were from the house of Yehoiariv. Right. Which is, which is kind of different. By the way, I actually have a friend who claims that his, he can he can trace his lineage all the way to the house of Yehoiariv. That's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's well, right now. Right now, they right now there's uh DNA testing that basically can trace people back down. So it's kind of interesting. All right, so mm. it says, and they shall teach the people between uh the difference between the holy and the common and show them the distinct to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. And that's a very important verse that sadly many people don't look into deeper. And I think if we understood what that meant from a temple perspective, which, by the way, that's the argument Yeshua is having in Mark chapter 7, Luke, uh, Mark, Matthew 23, in regards to the Pharisees. Would you agree that the Pharisees, they took a lot of the temple purity and they tried to apply it to every domain outside the city of Jerusalem, which created a huge problem? Not, not just the Pharisees, the Essenes did the same thing as well. Uh, but they went away. So they were more isolated in the mountains. But the Pharisees were kind of pushing people Regular people on Canada. I don't think they were isolated in the mountains. I th I think we need to understand that, from a sociological point of view, there was this realization. The first we have to realize the Pharisees were not everyone, and the Essenes That's were true. not everyone. That's true. That's true. Eventually, when the Essenes pretty much perished and the Sadducees dispersed, who was in power? Who was in control of everything? Yeah. Pharisees. The Pharisees and their descendants, the sages, and then eventually what we call rabbinic Judaism. So there were. The, there was this concept that, that even rabbis, after the, the, the Pharisees kind of stopped being a sect of their own, really Judaism morphed into this thing called Pharisaic Judaism, they, they did continue promoting for several hundred years into the Roman era this idea of keeping, this ideal of keeping, um, purity, uh, keeping laws. purity laws even when there's no temple. Correct. And that, now, by the way, that's, we see sect of Judaism today, like the ultra orthodox, that is still trying to do that. Um, I've met very, very few people who, who live that way. Um, what you do have is quasi versions of this, like for right. example, people who insist on going to the mikveh before to the to the ritual pool before they um, before they go to the synagogue right. or before they study Torah. Um, you have you have very very small principles of this still in existence, but not not to that extent. I mean, gotcha. you do have you do you do have people that try to live like in, in a much more pure sense, but the the purity that they went through, the, the purity that you kind of discuss with people, is more spiritual purity than anything else. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so, it's it's like it's like when it, it becomes metaphors for other things. So even Judaism went through a very similar process that Christianity did, where everything becomes a metaphor. So uh -huh. you're not really you're not really keeping clean in your everyday life, except for you know food and family purity and things like that. But you're you're not really keeping clean in the sense that you know did, did someone who is unclean sit on that chair? Okay, take it out and and dip it yeah. in the water is that piece of clothing okay let's go wash it and then dip it in the water you know yeah you went through a graveyard because it sprinkled water on you with with ashes we don't really live that anymore now well, um, we, we really can because it's not that we don't have the ashes here for the red heifer but hey let me ask you a question because we're almost done here and i want to uh, circle back to come back to the to the hanukkah celebration so as we covered all along we understanding 
that, and I do agree with you 100%, I think you, made a, you brought a very important point about identity. And I think that when we come into Torah, many people who are new coming into the observance and the following Torah and trying to understand these principles, what, what, what worries me is this, not understanding the history, not connecting the temple, and not understanding who they are and their identity is creating a vacuum in which now they are, they're, not, they're no longer Christians. They're not Orthodox. Who are we? So let's attack each other from both sides. And they're not taking the time to research, study, and validate information to bring a better balance of their observance. And I, and I see that the only way we're able to combat this type of attitude is given on the facts. That's what I like when you said, when you did the research, you look into all the areas that is affected. We, many people look at the book of Hebrew, um, Maccabees alone. When I study the book of Maccabees, I've also studied Josephus and I look around in all the things connecting it. Maybe not as in-depth as you, but I, you, know, you know how I study just like you. But you, you read the Hebrew better, way better than me, and actually 99.9% .9 better than me, and you understand this. So therefore you have a little bit of an advantage. Plus, you live in the geographical location where all the events happened. So that's a disadvantage we have. And I'm hoping that you can bring some encouragement to people that, although you're not connected necessarily with the New Testament, but even in the plain reading of the text, you can see that Yeshua is making a huge statement just by being there in the temple on such an important day that represents Israel in such a strong identity not only as a people of God, but also as a holy people in the holy temple. So I, I will say something very important because this question of identity always comes up. I mean, several years back, I did this kind of silly recording about, I called it, Who Am I? And I never actually published it because I felt as if maybe I'll be the wrong person to talk about this. But, you know, with years comes more experience and you can understand more of the dilemmas some people have. And I would say the following. First of all, each person comes really from a slightly different area. Right. So you have people who are, you know, they came from this church, they came from that church, and so on. Um, so that seriously affects the way people perceive things. And then there's the question of what teachers they were exposed to. So, for example, if you have a teacher that's more about identifying with Judaism, then the person is much more open to certain things. True. If you have a teacher who's more about, you know, saw Skiptora, only what appears in the Tanakh, and that's it. Uh, which in my opinion these days I would say is kind of erroneous um, because uh, throughout my studies and my thesis deals with this question and I, I hope to uh, pray for me that I'll be done with it in the next couple of months because we gotta do work. we gotta do a podcast on that yeah but the, the, so so you know there's my thesis deals with this question of you know can you only rely on what it says in the Torah or are there other things that show up? within the Torah that, or outside of the Torah that help us understand. It's one of these questions that's kind of hovering around within my, my writing. And what's very interesting about the whole thing is that when you look closely at this concept of identity during the Second Temple era, and even today, it's always accented with something from the past. So you have people who want to be more like Judaism. They have people like rabbinic Judaism. They have people who want to be more like Karaites. Then you have people who want to be more like Samaritans. And you have people. And, and the thing is that they're all looking for their path in some way or another. And everyone wants to kind of find recognition and so on. 
And it's a very, very understandable thing. I mean, you want to live true to the ideals that you have, which is very important, but you also are seeking truth, which is very important as well. So where is the truth? And the, I would say the truth of the matter is that you just have to understand that it's, there was never really one identity. There was never really one way of doing things. I think that when we look at the history of, say, for example, Torah keeping in, in the last several thousand years, I don't think there was one way of doing things unless you actually went to the temple and asked the high priest, how do we do this? And then the high priest tells everyone, this is the way to do it. And everyone has to do it the same way. Exactly. But there were a lot of things that were kind of left open. And this is a, another entire discussion by itself. But I think that the best point to start from is what is your base principle? What are your base principles as a person? And the moment you realize that your base principle as a person, it doesn't matter where you're from, your base principle is that you are loyal to the God of Israel, you are loyal to the Torah of Moses, and you are loyal to the identities that come with it. Everything else should be put aside. I agree. You know, so this is why this is why it was so easy for the for the, the Maccabees to get everyone on board with this idea. Right. Because it worked off of the base concept that everyone had. And in this era, they also had sects. They had the Sofrim, they had some kind of, they had Hasidim. These are all kind of forerunners of the Pharisees and the, and the, and the Essenes. There were priests that were the forerunners right, of the right, Sadducees right. and so on. They, but they all had a common denominator. The moment you focus on this common denominator, all the other accents that you throw into it are, are irrelevant when it comes to the, the, the larger picture. But and Joe, if we but, sit down uh, and talk and discuss things, we can agree on things eventually. But what you just said, everything points back to uh, the temple because they, a lot of those people, they all have that in common. The Torah always points you back to holiness, to clean and unclean. So what I found in my studies is that regardless of the, of the argument we're having, when you go look deeper into it, it's a, a need for identity, like you said, uh, a, or a lack of understanding of, the, the the realm of kedusha holiness and that's what i'm trying to focus in my life trying to understand it better sadly not everybody shares the same passion for these things so they are in the from the outside looking in trying to understand something that um that is away from our original identity so we're, we're trying to understand how to live a torah observant life but yet we don't want to really look at the Jewish people as a model because we immediately find fault a thousand ways because we came from a system of religion that has replacement theology and they taught us that they did everything wrong and now we're trying to figure it out and, oh, Lord, what do we do? And then we don't want the instruction. I think, and I submit to people, that if exactly what you said, they all have one thing in common. If When the Maccabees, they rallied people to fight on behalf of God because they called out a rally cry uh, a, a cry out for, hey, let's be loyal to the covenant. So I think that when we return back to that posture of loyalty to covenant and God, we may have more common ground and, and more um, unity in that sense. And we start going to the right sources for the information. Joe, man, thank you so much for joining us, man. It's, it's really nice me. to have you, though. And I'm looking forward to having another one because we need to do this at least once a month. Um, it's a good discussion. I learned a lot from you. Believe it or not. <gasps> the horror. <Shocking>. The horror. <laughs> uh, many people don't know. Joe is, is and was my original Hebrew teacher. And I'm not a good student right now. But anyway, I still love him. Um, yeah. 20 lashes later on. 
20 <laughs> lashes later so on. It's a, com- it's a common joke I do with my students. You know? <laughs> I tell them, so, so the student says, I didn't do my homework. And I tell them, okay, 20 lashes. It's just me making fun of uh, That's good, of bro. But <laughs> I really, I really yeah. appreciate your knowledge and what you share with us. And thank you for being so open about helping us understand culture and history and the research you do. And um, I thank you for your friendship. We love you, dude. And I'll talk to you soon, my friend. So everyone watching, thank you so much for watching us and having a discussion about very interesting topic. Should we keep Hanukkah? How, how is it that you say it? You were just doing it Oh, earlier. I was making a Joking joke. Chanukah. Chanuka. Chanuka. <laughs> how do you keep Chanukah? Hanukkah? Did Yeshua keep it, it, Hanukkah? It, we it, found out that, yes. It's, it's not about the candle lighting. It's about celebrating the the um, the idea of the unity of everything together around this one temple. Amen. Amen. You know, Joe, you know, Walter Agosto, you know, our buddy, he's one of your students in Hebrew too, Walter, right? I haven't seen Walter in a very, very long time. I know, right? I, I'll tell him. <laughs> but Walter I hope has, everything's okay. He's doing great. Walter, uh, Walter Agosto is a, an amazing teacher in Puerto Rico, Spanish. He's been an a amazing friend. friend as well. I mean, yeah. I, I love the guy to pieces. I haven't seen him in several years. Actually, just recently, Facebook sent me an image from, say, everything was like four years ago. Yeah, he's and doing good. standing together and smiling. And he's man, this is such an amazing guy. So Walter, he's been a friend. It's like a brother to me. And he's also been a student for a long time. And he has this teaching that is incredible. I would love for him to do it in Hebrew, uh, in English. Is he says something, he'd been reading a lot of anthropology and he loves engineering and stuff too, like me. And he said, he did a teaching and he said, customs and rituals, they establish the values that you live by. The Torah teaches you, but these customs exactly. and the rituals, they, they give you a fundamental uh, structure to the values that you live by. And I believe that observing Hanukkah and everything that goes along with it, in this case, remembering the, the temple, and even the lighting of the candle, if you do it, understand that it's, it has a meaning of the dedication of the temple, accounting down to, hey, it's an official temple of God. And th- th- let us not lose sight of really the essence of the day, of the week, is to remember that in the midst of oppression, persecution, and the worst possible moment Israel can be, if they unite with the purpose to honor God and His holiness, by keeping the covenant and being loyal to him, he will give us the strength to have dominion and to also conquer a bigger adversary. And I think that in this week coming up, we need to remember that. Joe, love you, man. Thank you so much. And I look forward to having another session with you, my friend. Thank you. Shalom.